High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. Great films of the silent years. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. Today's subject is an actor who was one of the biggest stars of his day, but whose legacy has been taken over by his death. Wallace Reed was a silent action star, and for a while, he was held up as the ideal image of the American male. But then, an injury led him to opiate addiction. He died while in a facility trying to kick the addiction, and after his death, his wife, in an effort to change the conversation about drug addiction, became a filmmaker. In Hollywood Babylon, Anger portrays Reed as the sacrificial lamb of the studio's rush to make it look like they were cleaning their houses. Then, according to Anger, once Wally was conveniently out of the way, his widow used his corpse as a stepping stone to her own fame. Anger's version of the story begins with something called a doom book supposedly compiled by Will Hayes, the former postmaster general who was hired in 1922 to clean up Hollywood's image in the wake of a number of scandals. Here's this week's special guest, reading from Hollywood Babylon. With the approval of Tsar Hayes, a doom book was compiled with a total of 117 Hollywood names deemed unsafe, because of their no longer private lives. When the Doom Book was shown to Adolf Zukor, the head of Paramount Pictures had cause for alarm. Leading the blacklist was the name of his top box office draw, Wallace Reed. Zukor, 
whose studio had already sustained a staggering loss when public outcry forced withdrawal of all Arbuckle and Mary Miles Mentor pictures, bitterly protested the proposed banning of his popular star. The other studio chiefs behind the blacklist knew there were ways to force the hand even of powerful Zucor and leaked the inside dope on Reed to the ever-avid tabloids. Hollywood hopheads, read the headline, the story insinuating that among prominent film colony drug addicts was a certain very popular male star at Paramount. These rumors were suddenly confirmed in a startling manner when Wally Reed, the king of Paramount, was spirited away to a secluded private sanitarium in March 1922. The commitment papers had been signed by Florence, Reed's unhappy wife, a featured player at Universal under the name of Dorothy Davenport. Papa Lemley, among others, had counseled Florence that Wally's cure was a pressing matter. She heartily agreed, and even Zucor reluctantly concurred it was better that Wally be kept out of sight. Paramount issued some euphemisms about Reed's overwork, but soon Mrs. Wallace Reed herself informed the press that her husband was undergoing a cure for morphine addiction. The sensational news that Wally Reed was a drug addict stunned the American public. Wally was not just a popular movie star. He was the vital exponent of young American manhood. Blue-eyed, chestnut-haired Wally was a cheerful, strapping, six-foot-three giant, possessed of great charm and acting ability, as well as youth and good looks. Now his nickname, Good Time Wally, took on another meaning. He spent the remainder of 1922 within a padded cell of that private sanitarium. The abrupt withdrawal of his daily morphine fix and the shock of abrupt confinement unhinged his mind. Wally became obsessed with the idea that he had been railroaded, and he was right. Paramount had pushed him through a non-stop production schedule of Wallace Reed racing pictures that had little to recommend them but the personality of the star behind the wheel. The grueling pace began to tell, and in 1920, when he was working on Forever, Wally took his first morphine fix to mask his exhaustion and bolster his energy. By the time the film was in the can, Wally was hooked. Toward the end, working on Clarence, they actually propped Wally before the camera in order to finish the picture. Wally died in his padded cell on January 18, 1923, age 30. A rumor swept the movie colony that he had been put to sleep. At the time of Wally's death, his wife, Florence, hastened to call a press conference. She announced her intention to avenge her husband's death. Florence also took the opportunity to announce that her next picture would be Human Wreckage, an expose of dope traffic. On her subsequent cross-country lecture tour to warn of the dangers of drug addiction and launch human wreckage, her opportunistic billing was always Mrs. Wallace Reed. Anger's capper was to caption a photo of Reed's wife, Professional Widow, Mrs. Wallace Reed. There's so many inaccuracies here, and of course, we'll get to all of them. But one thing to point out from the jump, Anger persists in calling Reed's wife Florence, as if this actress's use of a stage name and then her married name instead of her birth name was the ultimate sign that she was a phony. We know that a lot of people used stage names, so many that it wouldn't be evidence at all of anything. But in this case, I don't think Dorothy Davenport was a stage name. I can't find any evidence that she was born with the name Florence. Every other account I can find, other than Hollywood Babylon, refers to her only as Dorothy. Dorothy Davenport was part of a family of performers, and it would make sense for her to have been given the kind of alliterative first and last name that other actors and actresses had to make up. It's possible anger confused Dorothy Davenport Reed, R-E-I-D, with an actress working more or less at the same time named Florence Reed, R-E-E-D. Or, it's possible that he willfully conflated the two women to strengthen his attack on Reed's widow as an opportunist. 
Today, we will fact check the following claims. That Wallace Reed was committed to a sanitarium, at least in part, because his blacklisting had been ordered by Will Hayes in a so-called doom book. That Reed's wife conspired with Will Hayes and various film executives to, quote, put Reed to sleep, or at least engineer the conditions under which he died. And that Dorothy then became a professional widow, callously milking her husband's death for her own personal profits. We'll also tell the fascinating story of Wallace Reed's rise to fame, and try to sort out the many conflicting stories as to how and why his morphine addiction killed him. We'll see that Wallace Reed was, in fact, railroaded, but maybe not the way that anger suggests. Join us, won't you, for another chapter of Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. Wallace Reed, called Wally, was born in 1892 to Bertha and Hal Reed, theater people who took their young son on the road with them from the moment he was conceived. Bertha was an actress and Hal an actor-turned-writer. When Wally was four, he made the first of what would be many walk-on appearances in one of his father's plays— but Bertha was against the idea of her only son following his parents into showbiz. The Reeds sent their son to prep school and college, where he began exploring an interest in medicine. But on summer break when he was 17, Hal and Bertha figured it couldn't hurt to let Wally take a part in a play that needed someone age-appropriate for the role of a college boy. It could hurt. Entranced by the attention he received from his adult stage debut, Wally wanted to leave his medical studies behind to follow in his father's footsteps. His parents, hoping to discourage him, decided to send Wally out west, away from New York, which was then the center of the entertainment industry, and into a hotbed of adventure, which would hopefully make the kid long for the easy life of college. They put their son on a train headed for Wyoming, armed with a letter of introduction to the sister of Buffalo Bill Cody, a friend of Wally's dad who had parlayed a real background as a frontiersman into a showbiz career depicting the Western experience. 17-year-old Wally arrived in Cody, Wyoming and was swiftly put to work as the night clerk at a hotel owned by Buffalo Bill's sister May. The hotel's guests were often stopping in Cody en route from one adventure to the next, and their stories compelled young Wally to quit his job and join them. He found work on a pick and shovel gang, helping to build the Shoshone Dam. In the company of the older laborers working with him on the project, Wally learned how to shoot a gun, ride a horse, fight a man with his bare hands, and generally how to acquit himself on the frontier. Wally felt he was becoming a man, but after a few months, his parents got tired of worrying about their boy, so they lured him home by sending a telegram claiming that Bertha was fatally ill. Wally got on the first train back to the East Coast, and arrived to find that his mother was perfectly fine. In fact, when he got home, Bertha wasn't even there. She was out shopping. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So, to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. After his great adventure out west, Wally refused to return to college, but he didn't pursue the stage right away either. Instead, he got a job as a cub reporter on the Newark Daily Star. He went into it imagining another type of adventure, but instead, he found himself hanging around morgues, waiting for new corpses to arrive. He eventually moved on to Motor Magazine, where he could indulge his lingering boyhood passion for cars and get paid to cover the racetrack. And then, circumstances conspired to lure him back to showbiz. A play his father had written, called The Girl and the Ranger, was set to be performed on a short tour. At the last minute, the male lead dropped out. Wally was the right age for the role, and despite Bertha's protests, Hal asked him to take the part. At the last stop of the tour, in Chicago, Hal and Wally visited the Selig Polyscope Film Studio. Hal had been losing money on the repertory circuit for his plays for the past few years because audiences were abandoning local theater for the movies. Hal had decided that since he couldn't beat the motion picture racket, he should try to join it and on the spot he signed to Selig Polyscope as a scenario writer and actor. The studio found work for Hal's son, both behind and in front of the camera. Eventually, father and son moved back to New York and found work at the Vitagraph Studios there. Wally had decided that he wanted to write and direct films, but other directors kept putting the good-looking young man in front of the camera. He was frequently cast for his physique alone, in roles that required him to appear shirtless or wearing even less. He remembered one costume as consisting of nothing but, quote, a string of beads and a leopard skin. In 1911, Wally was reeling from the breakup of his first serious relationship to an up-and-coming opera singer who had to go to Italy to train and whose parents didn't want her marrying a lowly movie actor who could hold her back or even drag her down. A director who had worked with Wally before named Otis Turner was leaving New York to go work for the new Universal Studios in Hollywood, and he invited Wally to come along. In need of a change of scenery, Wally again headed west. He worked as a jack-of-all-trades for Turner, Writing a little, directing a little, turning the camera crank a little, and acting a little. At Universal, Wally soon laid eyes on the woman who would become his wife. Dorothy Davenport was an auburn-haired 17-year-old actress who was regularly paired romantically on screen with much older men. But Dorothy had been cast in a western for which there was no other available leading man, so 19-year-old Wally stepped in. Dorothy was annoyed to be paired with such a young actor. As she put it, I didn't consider a man grown up until he was bordering on 30. Wally was annoyed to be acting at all, but he was well-suited to the work. His time in Wyoming had taught him how to ride a horse, which was a major component of this silent Western. From then on, 
Universal made use of Wally's talents whenever they could, which meant often putting the nearly naked young man on top of a horse. Wally wished the studio was as enthusiastic about letting him pursue his true passions of writing and directing. To amuse himself, he began pursuing Dorothy. He had been playing G-string Indian roles, Dorothy recalled later, and he used to sail up past my dressing room on horseback, dolled up in a loincloth, and not much else. He used to kind of roll his eyes around to see if I was looking. I will say, he looked well in a G-string. It was my almost daily practice to slam the door when he would appear, because I knew that he knew that he was good-looking, and I was not going to let him think that I had succumbed to his good looks. Eventually, Dorothy agreed to go for a ride with him in his car. Soon, Wally and a male friend were sharing a house with Dorothy and her mother as a way for all four to cut their expenses. The boys would ride their horses through Griffith Park to and from work at the studio. On Sundays, Dorothy and Wally would ride together, and on Tuesday nights they'd go out on dates. For about two years, Dorothy played hard to get, and then Wally was seriously injured while filming a stunt. He fell off his horse, and the horse fell on him. This injury brought out Dorothy's maternal instincts. On October 13, 1913, they were married. The couple began appearing in movies together, 27 of them in 1914 alone. At this point, the film industry was a volume business. D.W. Griffith was trying to change that by making longer, better films that could sustain business, rather than the cheap shorts that Wally typically starred in, which were cycled in and out of the theater in a day or two. In 1914, Griffith invited Wally to leave Universal and come join his acting company. Wally accepted, not because he had changed his mind about not loving acting, but because he thought he could learn so much about writing and directing from the great Griffith, who already had the reputation of being the most innovative man in the industry. Shortly after they began working together, Wally was told to prepare to play a major role in Griffith's next film, which was being called The Klansman. The actor originally cast in the part of the Little Colonel had fallen ill, and for a while, it looked like fate had shined on Wallace Reed again. But the other actor recovered, and after shooting a few scenes, Wally had the part stripped away from him. As consolation, Griffith gave Reed a small but memorable role as Jeff, a blacksmith who leads a bar fight against a group of black men, one of whom is suspected of causing the suicide of a white maiden. By the end of the fight, Jeff's shirt has been ripped from his back, but he's beaten down his foe, or so he thinks, until one of the black men shoots him. Other directors had used Wally merely as eye candy, but Griffith took advantage of his body to subtly further his own racist view of history, highlighting Wally's enviable physique as the American male ideal, only to have a black man kill him and thus send the message that all African Americans were a threat to all white Americans valued. Wally later believed that Griffith had only given him the bigger part and then taken it away to ensure an authenticity to Reed's anger in the fight scene. Though Wally had appeared in more than 100 films before The Klansman, which would be retitled The Birth of a Nation, it was Griffith's blockbuster that made him a real star. Not that he was living like one. His salary was just $40 a week at this point. But the shirtless blacksmith caught the eye of Cecil B. DeMille, Griffith's main competition as a director of epic feature films. 
As DeMille's studio chief, Jesse Lasky, remembered, Wally, quote, had a perfect physique, large expressive eyes, and flawless features. Lasky's company signed Wally to a star contract and paired him as a love interest to opera star Geraldine Farrar in two non-musical silent film adaptations of stage hits, Maria Rosa and Carmen. Carmen was released first, featuring Wally in his first lead role as the tragic romantic hero Don Jose, and it was a sensation. When The Golden Chance, Wally's first DeMille film without Farrar, was released in January 1916, it grossed over four times its $18,000 budget, proving Reed could draw audiences on his own. Wally had a low opinion of his own stardom. He once compared himself to a Follies girl. When I lose my face and figure, he predicted, I'm gone. He seemed determined to prove that he was more than a pretty face by shoring up his credibility as a daredevil. Always a fan of fast cars, in 1915, Reed skirted disaster. Out for a joyride with his friend, Thomas Ince, on Pacific Coast Highway in Reed's Marmon sports car, Wally plowed his car into another vehicle, containing a family. The collision killed the other driver and injured the car's passengers, and Ince was thrown from the Marmon and fractured his collarbone. But Reed somehow evaded repercussions. Reed's search for off-the-clock thrills was understandable given the enormous pressure he was now under for the first time. He would star in 10 films in 1916, which was nothing compared to the 19 his wife appeared in, although she was gearing up for an early retirement. In the fall of 1916, the Reeds discovered that they were going to have a baby, and as soon as Dorothy's contract ended in 1917, she gave up her career to take care of their son, Billy. Work was often grueling for Wally, who still harbored dreams of working as a writer and director. Lasky's studio placated their star by letting him direct a few shorts, but it was made clear to him that such things were to be considered extracurricular. His real job was cranking out appearances before the camera. This was a job he couldn't get out of, even when he wanted to enlist to fight in World War I. At the age of 26, Wally was supporting a wife and baby, as well as his parents and Dorothy's mom. Now that the Reed household was down to one salary, Wally was all but handcuffed to the studio. The fact that he was unable to serve his country became, for Wallace Reed, another sore spot for his self-esteem. While the real men were fighting and dying in Europe, he was wearing makeup back home. Wally had compared himself to a Follies girl, which wasn't the worst analogy. His studio was certainly treating him like they believed he was a flash in the pan, casting him in many quickly made, less than prestigious films, as if trying to milk as much as they could out of him while he was still a top box office draw. And he was that. Wally was beloved by filmgoers. Perhaps too much so. He was frequently targeted by obsessive fans, many of them women who attempted to throw themselves at him. All reports suggest Wally remained faithful to Dorothy, at least for the time being. In 1919, an incident would occur which would throw their lives into chaos. Unbeknownst to Wally, Dorothy, the fans and the studio, Wallace Reed would have less than three years left to live. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. 
on every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. By 1919, fan magazines were calling Reed the screen's most perfect lover. He had become the greatest example of a male screen type that was prevalent in films of the late teens and 20s. In that portion of the silent era when films had gotten longer and better, but many were still generally disposable. Reed was an all-American sportsman capable of virtually any physical action, but rarely imbued on screen with much of a personality or soul. In March 1919, when he joined the cast and crew of Valley of the Giants to board a train to take them all to a location in the woods near the California-Oregon border, Wally assumed it would be another handful of days at the office. And then, As the train crossed a bridge, the caboose, where Wally had been sitting, skipped the tracks and pulled the entire train over the edge, crashing into a 15-foot embankment. In shock, Wally barely registered the blood dripping down his face from a gash in his head. Later, it would be clear that a piece of glass had wedged itself in, and that, in the crash, he had also damaged the sciatic nerve in his back. But in the chaos, believing himself to be able-bodied, Wally tended to others, helping them escape from the wreckage and tending to minor wounds. A full 12 hours after the accident, rescuers arrived and Wally was finally taken to see a doctor in a nearby town. He was given six stitches in his scalp, and his wounded arm was bandaged up. Then, the next day, at the insistence of the studio, everyone went back to work. Director James Cruz had to carefully position Wally so that his bandages wouldn't show on camera. And Jesse Lasky sent the studio doctor to the location to make sure Wally's pain, which now included blinding headaches, wouldn't cause delays. This doctor made sure the patient had enough morphine to remain on his feet. Wally would continue taking the morphine, supplied and recommended by doctors, for months. And then, the months stretched into a year, And because the studio was pushing Reed to complete one movie after another, he didn't and couldn't stop and think about the extent to which he was using the drug just to keep going. By 1920, Lasky had discovered that audiences wanted to see Wally as an on-screen daredevil. And so he made a series of car movies, such as The Roaring Road and Excuse My Dust. He also continued to play romantic roles. In one of the six features Lasky squeezed out of Reed in 1920, Always Audacious, Wally played a dual role, both an heir and his romantic rival. The studio got two performances for the price of one, but Wally paid the price. The more he kept working, the more he kept using morphine, which we think of as a downer, but which for Wally apparently acted as a stimulant and became necessary to give him the energy to maintain his schedule. In fact, he would get so hopped up, as they say, to work, that at night he started drinking whiskey in order to come down and get some sleep. In late 1920, Wally began hosting regular parties at his and Dorothy's home. These parties would start out with just a handful of friends, drinking and listening to jazz. But Wally kept an open-door policy, 
and as friends invited their friends who invited strangers, the parties would swell and stretch all over the house and into the wee hours of the morning. Dorothy, who would often remain on the sidelines, said she saw strangers marching out of her house with entire bottles of liquor stolen from Wally's home bar. She understood that her husband was too kind and too generous to turn people away from their home. But she started to wonder if something else was going on, too. Dorothy had gradually began to notice a difference in her husband, but she was not initially aware that he was addicted to drugs. Later, she would blame bootleggers and uninvited party guests for peer-pressuring her medicinal addict husband into abusing drugs recreationally. At some point, Reed began turning to the black market for his supply, and this was tough to keep secret. Around Thanksgiving 1920, Variety reported that a drug dealer had been arrested for possession of seven bundles of heroin en route to deliver the drugs to, quote, one of the best-known male picture stars on the coast. The drug dealer was arrested when the wife of the star discovered that the courier was on his way and called the police to intercept him. Wally and Dorothy were not named by the trade paper, but Jesse Lasky was pretty sure he had a problem on his hands. Rumors about Wally persisted, and blind items continued to pop up in the trades and local newspapers through 1921. In the fall of 1921, as Lasky's sister company Paramount was beginning to assess the financial damage of the Fatty Arbuckle scandal, they had to start taking the rumors about Wally's drug use seriously. Anger suggests the studio only took action when Will Hayes presented them with his Doom book, which doesn't seem to be the case. For one thing, I can't find any reliable evidence that there was a Doom book. The book itself certainly hasn't been preserved, and most of the publications that mention the Doom book use language so similar to Anger's that he seems to be their source. The one notable exception is The Celluloid Closet by Vito Russo, which has one vague sentence suggesting the Doom book was part of Hayes' efforts to strengthen his Hayes Code in 1934. If this is correct, then the book wouldn't and couldn't have contained Wallace Reed's name, because as we'll see, Reed's drug problems ceased to be an issue 11 years before 1934. If, as Anger contends, the Doom book emerged shortly after Will Hayes began working with the studios in January 1922, then it's just interesting that of the 117 names supposedly contained within, the only one that has ever been published is Wallace Reed. What is true is that as soon as it became apparent that Paramount was worried about the barely-veiled blind items referring to Reed's addiction... Dorothy stepped in, in an attempt to protect her husband by reframing the narrative. As early as May 1921, seven months before Hayes came to town, she was providing defenses to the media. At first, she was not exactly candid. In response to a report that yet another courier had been arrested at Wally's home, Dorothy told the San Francisco Examiner, that it was true, but that the delivery boy had been there to sell her husband, quote-unquote, French magazines, and that they had all been shocked when bundles of morphine fell from the pages of said publications. Wally went to New York to film Forever, an adaptation of a play called Peter Ibbotson, which would provide him with a rare, serious challenging role. This is the film which Anger claims was made in 1920, and on the set of which, Wally first took morphine. 
Forever was actually shot in mid-1921, and we know that he had already been using the drug prior to this shoot. But his addiction certainly worsened that summer. In the midst of shooting, Wally needed to have nine teeth pulled, and then he came down with a cold and fever of 103. These events thwarted any attempt he might have made to stay off of morphine. In fact, the studio provided a doctor on set to dose Wally to make sure he could continue to work. But Wally's tolerance had grown too high to be sated by what even the bought-and-paid-for studio doctor would give him. So he started seeking additional fixes off-set, too. When Wally returned to California after filming, his appearance had changed significantly. Dorothy confronted him, and he broke down and admitted all that had gone on. They agreed that he had a problem and he needed to solve it. But the treadmill of work would not stop. He would star in nine films over the upcoming year. Will Hayes did not take his job until January 1922, months after the shooting of Forever and over a year after rumors of Reed's addiction had been published. So Lasky and the executives at Famous Players Lasky slash Paramount didn't need Hayes and his alleged doom book to learn that Wally Reed was in trouble. But once the would-be censor arrived in town, it seems that he did urge all of the studios to clean up the messes that they could control so that he wouldn't have to take public action. Jesse Lasky confronted Reed about the rumors. Wally denied them, and when Lasky asked if Wally would object to being examined by a doctor, Wally agreed. A doctor observed Reed for two weeks and wrote a report in which he stated, quote, without reservation that Mr. Reed is not a drug addict. This may have been akin to the statement Mabel Norman's nurse signed many years after that actress's death, claiming the same. In both cases, the person making the statement was preparing it for a third party who wanted the answer to be, no, the movie star was not addicted to drugs. In the case of Wallace Reed, we know the doctor's report was meaningless, because Reed was undoubtedly a drug addict, albeit one who may have been white-knuckling it through sobriety while the doctor was watching him. The studio was aware that something didn't compute, but their bottom line and reputation were at stake. They'd already lost millions of dollars on the Arbuckle scandal. They refused to lose another cash cow like Wally Reed to a censorship sweep. Wally made an attempt to wean himself off morphine, but in the spring of 1922, he had to suffer through more dental surgery, and he fell off the wagon. This was while filming the picture 30 Days, which some accounts say is the set on which Reed literally had to be propped up before the camera. By July, he was trying to kick again, but by late summer, things took a turn for the bizarre. Newspapers revealed in late August that Wally and Dorothy had adopted a three-year-old girl named Betty. Rumors around town, which eventually appeared in gossip columns, held that this was Wally's illegitimate daughter, conceived with an extra girl in a druggy haze during his first wave of addiction in 1919. The timing on that doesn't quite work out. If Betty was the product of an affair, that affair probably took place before the March 1919 accident, which led to Wally's addiction. In any case, Betty suddenly became part of the family, just as Wally was gritting his way through more withdrawal. His body was weak and susceptible to all manner of infirmity and injury. While shooting the film Nobody's Money in October 1922, he came down with a case of Klieg eyes, 
a temporary blindness caused by the unnaturally bright lights used on sets. For the first time since 1915, despite all he had suffered through, Wally was finally forced to take a full week off from a shoot. Still, he was back on set before his vision had fully returned, being pushed by the studio and pushing himself to prove that he was strong enough to do what was expected of him. But he wasn't. When his current film finished, he went on what was supposed to be a restorative trip to the mountains and came back suffering from dysentery. Almost 100 years later, Wally's granddaughter would relate the story that Reed had arranged a drug delivery on the trip and had taken an overdose. His various maladies, combined with the cumulative damage done by his years of drug use, weakened him totally. Finally, Dorothy decided she had no choice but to check her husband into a sanitarium. Hollywood Babylon implies that Dorothy teamed up with the head of Reed's studio and the head of her own studio to have Wally unnecessarily committed to a padded cell loony bin where he was essentially euthanized. In this account, Carl Lemley of Universal is named as Dorothy's secret behind-the-scenes ally. This is easy to debunk. Dorothy and Wally had met while both were working at Universal in 1912, but by the time of Reed's sickness, Dorothy wasn't a contract player anywhere. She had semi-retired after giving birth and had only made one film since then for Paramount. So Carl Lemley was not Dorothy's studio head, and there's no indication that he was advising her at all. However, the actual circumstances of Wally's health and his hospitalization are a bit murky. Part of this is because Dorothy, in a public relations campaign that began a year and a half before Wally died and continued for much of the rest of her own life, told a lot of different stories. It seems like the one she hoped would stick was the one that claimed that Wallace Reed, just 31 years old and just a couple years removed from appearing to be Hollywood's finest example of young American physical perfection, died because he insisted on withdrawing from morphine cold turkey and that his body simply couldn't handle it. She began speaking openly about his struggle with addiction in December 1922, while Reed was hospitalized. She claimed this is what Wally wanted. She said, It was his plan, as soon as he gained strength, to invite a representative of every Los Angeles newspaper to come to him and hear the true story, the truth of his slavery. He recognized impersonally, as I do, that by reason of his prominence, such a story from him would serve to bring forcibly before the people the dangers of the drug evil. But she also told a reporter that her husband contracted influenza in the hospital, and a doctor tending to him told the New York Times, quote, His present illness has no connection with overindulgences in alcohol or narcotics, although such indulgences have undoubtedly undermined his strength and system in months gone by. When Wally's body gave up on January 18, 1923, it was his lungs that failed, and his kidneys. But in press conferences and interviews in the wake of her husband's passing, Dorothy spread the blame to Wally's friends who had turned her home into a, quote, roadhouse, but more significantly on a medical establishment that freely prescribed addictive drugs without understanding how to treat addiction itself as a sickness. In so doing, she invoked war veterans and everyday Americans as victims of the same thing that killed her husband. And in so doing, transformed Wally's addiction from a harbinger of Hollywood sin into a public health crisis 
that could afflict even the sin-free. She was determined, she said, to avenge her husband's death. And publicity-wise, she did. Dorothy would ensure that Wallace Reed's would be one scandal that, instead of destroying and burying the star at its center, would rehabilitate him in death to an extent that may have been impossible in life. But in so doing, as we'll see, she made herself a target. Other than the implication that Reed was put to sleep and that his wife had something to do with it, the facts in Hollywood Babylon concerning how Wally's widow continued on without him are not entirely incorrect. Reed had left behind an estate valued in the mid-five figures, but about $40,000 was represented by the value of the house. Dorothy had to go to work to support her kids, She chose to tie that work, at least initially, to the tragedy that had befallen her husband. She set to work making a film called Human Wreckage, which she would star in and produce about a married couple caught up in morphine addiction. It was not my idea to make a picture, Dorothy insisted. I am very, very tired. I should like to retire from the field for a little while. Not to mourn, for Wally would not have me mourn what he and I both know is only a separation, but to rest and to remember. But this, it seems, isn't to be. Through no fault of my own, through circumstances that are tragic enough, God knows, I have been placed in a position to carry the banner in the anti-drug war. It has been flung to me as Wally's wife. For his sake and for the sake of the thousands like him who are suffering from this hideous disease, I cannot, I dare not, lay it down. Perhaps understanding that Paramount had been the opposite of supportive of her husband, Dorothy partnered with another studio to make human wreckage. She decided that Thomas Ince, Wally's old friend, quote, was the one man I knew in pictures who had helped me to do this thing. Ince gave her a sweetheart deal, which would allow Dorothy to produce two films and take home 50% of their profits. Though not credited as Human Wreckage's writer or director, Dorothy said she supervised the whole process to ensure authenticity. Then, she went on tour promoting the film. A kind of docudrama, Human Wreckage depicted the cultivation and export of poppy plants, the trafficking of the drug, and finally, an accidental addiction, not unlike Wally's. The experience of being too sick for withdrawal, which Dorothy had ascribed to Wally, was in the film displaced on a young mother, played by Bessie Love. An unabashed work of propaganda, Human Wreckage was effective and profitable. It grossed on its original release almost three times the $255,000 it had cost to make. Now, as Mrs. Wallace Reed, Dorothy became a celebrity activist filmmaker. Her initial directorial effort no doubt benefited from the interest in her husband's death and his addiction. Though Human Wreckage was promoted as an educational film, and bookended by direct-to-camera addresses from Dorothy, begging the audience to help her fight the scourge of addiction. Audiences were permitted to see the film as educational in a less nutritive way. They could read it as giving them a rare inside glimpse into a celebrity's fall into the gutter. Dorothy was not the first woman to direct socially conscious Hollywood films. Lois Weber had been making issue dramas for over a decade. But by the mid-1920s, Weber and her films were falling out of fashion. As scandal after scandal threatened to destroy the film industry, a trend of editorials and such burbled up, positing that lady directors could prove a good influence on Hollywood 
and help to drain the swamp of the Fatty Arbuckles and William Desmond Taylors and such. This was fake news. No such wave of female directors materialized. But Dorothy proved to be the one example that kept the chatter alive. The context of her husband's death allowed Dorothy to emerge as a kind of unicorn. Dorothy had a hard time following up on Human Wreckage's success. Her next film, Broken Laws, dealt with juvenile delinquency, a much less juicy topic than the addiction that had killed her celebrity husband, and no one cared. Then, in collaboration with gossip columnist Adela Rogers St. John's and pioneering director Dorothy Arzner, Dorothy Davenport made a film alternately called The Red Kimono and The Red Kimona. Arzner wrote the script based on a true story St. John's had written as a crime reporter about a woman who marries a man who she thinks is saving her from poverty, only to have him send her to live in a New Orleans brothel. When the man left her, she tracked him down and shot him, and was ultimately acquitted. The film begins with Dorothy on screen, flipping through a newspaper archive and landing on a real news story about a woman named Gabrielle Darley. She then turns to the camera, and an intertitle tells us that what we are about to see is based on something that really happened. As if to forestall complaints about the content to follow, the title claims, quote, If it contains bitter truths, remember that I only turn the pages of the past. The Red Kimona, recently restored and available for streaming, is beautifully shot and sensitively made. But it was a massive failure in its day because it was too true to life. In their effort to cloak themselves in documentary realism, the filmmakers used Gabrielle Darley's real name. And the real Gabrielle Darley, who had pulled her life together and was happily married to a new man, sued Dorothy Devonport Reed and won. Dorothy lost everything. She was forced to go back to acting to make a living and slowly rebuilt her behind-the-camera career by working for Poverty Row Studios. The Hollywood Babylon version of Wally and Dorothy's story never mentions the railroad accident or many of the other fascinating aspects of Reed's life and career. It mainly focuses on the idea that Reed's wife got rid of him and then capitalized on his death. What's interesting about this version of the story is not the inaccuracies so much as the knee-jerk sexism. Hollywood Babylon and the gossip lineage it anchors is supposed to be about speaking truth to power or revealing the subversive truth that the dominant culture doesn't want us to know. But what could be more in keeping with the dominant culture than shaming a self-sufficient, creative woman as a professional widow, enshrining her as the Ur-Yoko Ono or Courtney Love? Again and again, Hollywood Babylon teaches us that women who show any sort of independence are not to be trusted. In that sense, it's often much mustier than the scandals it's dredging up. Next week, we will discuss how all of the scandals we've covered over the past few weeks led to the institutionalizing of censorship in Hollywood. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Original music was composed for this season by Evan Viola. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. 
Special thanks to our special guest, Mark Olson, who read from the pages of Hollywood Babylon. Mark has appeared on this podcast several times. He played Val Luton and Walt Disney. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include links to our sources. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you are a fan of this podcast, perhaps you'll also like my new book. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. It comes out on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night 